Welcome to our podcast, Fear Less, Do More. Here we're going to take a deep dive into the minds of some really daring, impactful change makers. I'm your host, Jill Hunter, and I'm the managing partner at Square One Law. In each episode, we're going to meet some innovators, some trailblazers, and we're going to talk about their successes, their fears, their challenges, and their lived experiences. We're going to understand their secrets to their resilience and their source of their passion so that we can understand what drives them to achieve. These are all leaders who inspire us to step out of our own comfort zones and fear less, do more. Welcome to this episode of our podcast, Fear Less, Do More. Today I have with me Mickey Nicholas, who is the Diversity and Inclusion Manager at Northumbria Water. But there's a lot more to Mickey than that. Hi, welcome. Hi Joe, how are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Yeah, yeah, good. Good, good. Good to be here. You know, it's a bit misleading to say you're the Diversity and Inclusion Manager for Northumbria Water because behind that is a really varied, really interesting career and a really interesting story. Well, you, you, you're an East End boy. Yes, a long time, long oh. time. Born and bred in the East End of London in some of the most, uh, I think they call it socially deprived areas. Mm. Didn't feel like that when I was growing up because <laughs> everyone's at the same level. So yeah, many, many years ago um, and ended up in the North East. Yeah. Really happy in the North East now. So uh, it's been a journey. So it's been a journey. I think you, you started out, you worked for HMRC, you were a painter and decorator, no, you've done, done all sorts of I've done everything. Stuff. Over the good old days, you know, when, you know, with, with you know, not a massive, what you call an academic record behind me, you mm. could literally, you know, growing up in the 70s and early 80s, um, although with difficult times, uh, you know, for us as a country, you could get a job, you could leave a job on a Friday and get another one on a Monday in, in, in some cases. I mean, not a fantastic job, but work. Yeah. Um, you know, especially in my part of the world, there was always, there was always something to do. So yeah, I tried, I tried several things, um, <laughs> some out of necessity, some because at, at a point I had a bit of an interest in it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we, 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 we got by and, uh, and we, we, we made our way, as, as, as they say, you know, it's interesting. And the bulk of your early career has been in the fire service. Oh, all of it. Yeah. All of it. Um, you know, if I'm going to talk about, I never even thought about the word career until I joined the fire service. Before that, it was just a job. Yeah. You know, so you mentioned the painting and decorating. You know, I did an apprenticeship and I self-employed. Mm. It was just a job. Um, I joined the post office and had a great time in the post office um, and all the camaraderie and comradeship there. Um, but again, it was just a job. Um, the word career um, didn't enter my lexicon and, and, until I joined the fire service. Absolutely. And was the fire service something that you you did have an interest in and you wanted it and you wanted to pursue it or did, did it come around accidentally? Yeah, very much accidentally. Um, a couple of friends of mine, um, a really good friend who's obviously a really good friend still today, um, had joined the fire brigade and, and he happened to mention to me down, down the pub um, <laughs> one afternoon when I was saying, because oh, he just joined, how are you getting on? And mm. he said, oh, it's great. He said, you really should join him. He kind of said as an aside, we're looking for more like black people, you know. He said we've got a real recruitment drive at the moment um, for black people. Give it a go. And I thought about it, and he didn't. We didn't really talk about the job. It just sounded like a good idea. I was a, you know, a bit of a footballer then. He sort of mentioned that they had some really good sports teams. 
you know, we do all this other stuff about, as well as put out fires kind of thing. And I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. And uh, he sent me some details and I applied. Um, I can't remember if it was the first time I wasn't successful, um, but on a second application I was. And, and that was a story in itself. My uh, partner at the time was about seven months pregnant and she was at home and she was going through some of our drawers and she found the application that I'd filled in and not posted. Um, and on opening it, just to have a look, she realised that the closing date was that day. <laughs> so she literally, seven months, maybe eight months pregnant, jumped in the car and drove <laughs> to the London Fire Brigade headquarters, which was on the other side of London to where we lived at the time, and, and, and put in my application. Uh, and, and there begins the, the, the story of, of nearly 30 years' service in, uh, in the London Fire Brigade. That's a real sliding doors moment, that, isn't oh, it? Oh, she it's, reminds uh... me of it every day, you know. <laughs> Our son is now 35, so she, whenever we talk about my career and all the, all the you know, things that happen in, in, in my time, she always reminds me that mm. if it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't yeah. have been in the fire <laughs> because she dropped the form off that, that particular day. Yeah, and, and what a fortuitous thing for her to have done because, I mean, you have had a, you had a fantastic career in the fire service and have been a real sort of fearless game changer in the fire service, particularly around Thank the you. visibility and representation of, of, of black people within within the service. What was that like being one of the first black people within uh, the fire service? In, in the London Fire Brigade, mm. um, I mean, I think when I joined in 1990, the t what we had as data at the time said there was less than 200 and it was a workforce of, of 10,000 plus. Wow. When we talk about operational firefighters. So um, there, there wasn't that many of us. Um, but I, I didn't, you know, having grown up in a multicultural, multiracial East End of London, yeah, and then being based at a fire station on my manor, as we call it, where yeah, I lived yeah. in my borough, I, ne I never even thought about it. I never even thought um, uh, about you know. And I often say it was only when I joined the fire brigade I became a not a firefighter but a black firefighter because of the politics at the time. And Ken Livingston was the mayor at the time, the, G the old GLC, and he'd really driven for equality as mm -hmm. one of politically a massive thing for Ken Livingston and um, it was only till the fire I often say as I say I joined the fire brigade I sort of became black um, yeah. be because it was it was such a big thing but it was difficult um, and, and a lot of what I did subsequently within the fire service was based on my early start mm. um, as I said I was based on my manor in a place that I lived and grew up in and yet my early um, times in, in the brigade was 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 really challenging mm. Um, and, and there was a culture in the fire brigade at the time that people joined really young. You know, you could join from 18. So a lot of people joined at 18, between 18 and 20. Um, you know, but I joined at nearly 26. So I, I sort of joined the fire brigade as a... As a An old say, person. <laughs> yeah, in comparison to, yeah. to other new, new entrants. I remember my training squad, there was three of us, you know, who were over 25. The rest of the training squad were all fairly young lads. Mm. And, I, and I mean that, lads, it was only lads. Um, so having joined an organisation, not knowing that much about it, to be honest, or the job, um, and to come up against some of the challenges and, and some of the really challenging behaviours, mm. discriminatory, awful behaviours that I came up with, was really difficult for me. At the age of 26, you know, I was treated like a, a, a boy, um, literally, you know, you were expected as, as a fairly new firefighter to do all the rubbish jobs, 
not only in terms of operationally, but around the station, you know, making everyone tea and mm -hmm. sweeping up. And that was completely alien to, to what I understood about, you know, work mm -hmm. and a working environment. And as I say, especially in terms of where I lived and, and, and what I knew. Um, so it took a long while. It took a long time. I mean, there are many times, certainly in my first 18 months, seriously um, considered not staying there. Um, but I had a young child at the time and, you know, two reasons. One, you've got bills to pay and, and, and two, I just wanted my child, my first child, to, to be proud of something that I did. And it was a really proud job on the outside. Um, but yeah, it, was, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Is that why you got involved in the, the Fire Brigade Union? Yeah, Is absolutely. That... Um, you know, it was a difficult time for anyone who was different, anyone who wasn't, you know, white male and even... Some white males got a lot of stick. The culture was awful. The culture was very bullying, very mm. oppressive, especially if you were new, as I say, or different. Um, and, and, and the union started to take a lead on that. The union leadership at the time was, was led by a guy called Ken Cameron, very left-wing socialist um, leadership. And they started to realise, um, you know, through the grapevine, I guess, that, that certain people who were members of their union were not having a particularly good experience. So the union started to do something about it. Um, and, and, you know, they held out hands really to say to people like myself, look, come and tell us about what's going on. Tell us how you feel and help mm. us to, you know, through the channels to, to start to put things right. Um, and, and unbeknown to me, ever since sort of early 80s, the fire brigade had been talking about equality and, and it had only been talk really. Yeah. And the union became very, very aware of that. So yeah, it was through the union and, being encouraged by the union to speak out and being encouraged by the union to, to find a way to make things better, um, that I really started to think, you know what, this is what's happening to me or happening to me. And on a day-to-day -day basis, you do what you do, but you know, I'm, I'm passionate about making somewhere better for people coming in behind you. And the whole of the fire service, especially the London Fire Brigade, were leading on, on recruitment and diversity and bringing in different people because Ken Livingston had told them that's what they got to do. <laughs> Um, I just didn't want people from my community coming in behind me and having the same problems. Really, it was yeah. uh, every day was a, every day was a challenge for sure. So how, how did how did you go about addressing that? How did how did you help make those changes so that young black people coming in behind you didn't have the same experience? Yeah. The, one, the wonderful thing about the fire brigade union, or one of the many wonderful things about it, is because it's. A trade union, it only deals with the fire service. So its influence is massive. Yeah. Um, so whether that be through senior management or the politicians who run the fire service at mm. the time, it was the home office. It, it had really good, good, good influence, if I can call it that. Um, difficult, but good influence. And it just started to, first of all, um, look at how it worked itself as a union internally and the type of representation it had amongst its mm. own union structures. Um, so they started to, to put in um, rules and, and strategies around that. And then they started almost simultaneously started to go to the people who run the fire service and said, look, this is what's happening and, and it needs to stop and you have a responsibility to do something about that. Um, you know, and, and politically at the time it was difficult because, um, you know, should we say our political masters had a different perspective maybe at the time. Um, you know, you, you, you're talking Thatcher and, 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 and co. Um, but slowly but surely they got there. Slowly but surely they, they started to, to, to understand that as a public service, you needed to represent the public. 
in order to serve it as best as she can. And, and there started to be a recognition of what that meant. Mm. And I think it, you know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, you always need a change maker to ha make this happen. But actually what you're talking about is not just increasing representation, it's changing the whole culture of oh, the organisation. And that's a challenge for, for lots of organisations, particularly if you've been going for a long time, you need to be able to... What do you think are the, the sort of the key... If a business is listening to this thinking, actually, I can recognise some of this here, I can see that my culture needs to change, but I haven't got a clue where to start. What, what would your sort of recommendation be as to where to start if you think you have a problem with your culture that you need to change? Yeah, um, you know, one of the things we've learned for organisations, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. There, there are so many benchmarks mm. and, and so many other organisations have been doing that for a long time. So, so take the time to find out, take the time to look and to research and to talk to other people mm. um, who've been in that game, first and foremost, just to have an idea of some of the things that people have faced and the challenges they've overcome in order to make things better. Um, secondly, the most important thing is to look within, you know, to look at your culture, look at your people, try and find out if you best you can why people do what they do and behave as they behave. Um, because un unless you actually find out not what you hear, but what you know, you know, and what you can evidence about your own culture, you wouldn't even know where to start to, to go about changing it. Um, and, and one of the great things about my journey is I've, I've seen all the mistakes. Yeah. Um, the fire service made a lot of genuine, and I mean genuine mistakes, where they really thought they were doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and the underpinning mistake of it all was they didn't talk to people in the first place. A certain group of people at the head of the organisation just decided that was the best thing to do. Um, and, and the reality is, for I would say to any organisation, is that unless you have those internal conversations and, and find out where people are and why they are where they are, you wouldn't even begin to know where to start to, to, to put things right and to, and to make a change. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that that thing around, particularly around diversity and inclusion, has to be has to be led by the and has to have buy-in from the people at the top. Otherwise, it just becomes yeah. tokenism, tick boxes, exactly and policies that sit in drawers and nobody looks at them. How do you get top-level engagement? I think it's different. You know, when you've got a, a union who are saying this needs to happen, we're representing your workers here. If you haven't got that external influence coming in and telling you you think something needs to change. How, how can you, if you're sitting in an organisation, influence the board and convince them that something does need to change? Yeah, funny enough, it has, it's, it's almost two separate strands. So you've got the public, I call it the public and the private sector. Mm. So the public sector are absolutely led by politicians. You know, that they, they provide the funding, they provide, you know, our, our hard-earned money, yeah. fund something and, and, and organise something. So the politicians are the leaders in the public sector. Um, and as I said earlier in the conversation, you know, many, many years ago, it was recognised that to be reflective of the public is how you best deliver a public service. Um, in the private sector, for me, and, and in all my learning, it's the bottom line. Mm. It's, 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 it's selling what we know to be fact, you know, that a really good organisation with an inclusive culture, um, let alone a diverse one, um, the bottom line improves. You know, it gives you that longevity, it gives you that sustainability, and it's for people to understand that. Um, you know, what I'm finding certainly now living in, in the northeast is, is is that is still a message um, that, that that is is is, is still being delivered. So you, you you were in the Pfizer of thirty nearly thirty years, yeah, thirty years. Um, I mean, you must have seen an enormous 
change. Um, when you left the fire service, what were the, the things that you look back and went, I'm really pleased that that happened and I had some influence in that? Two things really, one, the leadership. Yeah. The leadership of the fire service was, was predominantly, especially in the big fire brigades. So you're looking at London, the West Mids, Manchester and places like that, Yorkshire. Some of those big fire brigades, you know, inner city yeah. fire brigades. Um, the type of leadership they then had. Um, leaders who were born into diversity, born up with diversity, understanding diversity and, 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 and the really good ones then making sure that their beliefs became reflective, mm. especially in their management teams. And that was the biggest change. I remember back in the day having conversations with people who, you know, who had a massive amount of influence who didn't have a clue. And sadly, some of them didn't want to have, mm. was not interested. You know, the old thing was, oh, as long as we put the fires out, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter who puts the fire out as long as we do put the fire out. And of course, as the fire service changed from being just reactive to being more community yeah. um, inspired, then, then other things had to change. And sadly, some of the leadership way back then didn't, didn't get that. Um, but the biggest change for me um, in, in, in some of those places and biggest evidence is the type of people you now see in the fire service, getting on and off of fire engines and, and representing the fire service in the community in all different ways. You know, there's been an awful lot of change, especially when I start to talk about community fire service. You know, when I joined, we were just a fire service. We literally did what we had to do and the bells went and off you went. And now the fire service is a completely different place. For me, the biggest evidence will always be what the public sees, which is the fire engines and other people in, in, in fire brigade vehicles and in fire brigade uniform is completely different to when I joined. You know, and some might argue that would have happened anyway. My, my, my gut tells me that wouldn't have happened mm. um, because it was so rooted in, in, in being that traditional job, primarily for men, preferably white men. Yeah. Um, so some of the stuff that me and others did, um, I, I, I think is evidenced by a completely different fire service today, not only in terms of what it delivers, but what it believes in as well. So you obviously love being part of the, the fire service and making those changes and helping to, to, for that progression that was needed and that you can visibly see the results now. So why did you leave? <laughs> I was tired. I was ti and, I'm not and, surprised. And I, I was tired. We, we, you know, me as I say, me and a small group of people did an awful lot of work over many years. In fact, it's not a small group. It was, I guess, proportionally in the end, quite a lot of us mm. um, were doing what we were doing. But I was, I was, I was a little bit tired. I'd had a... As you said at the beginning, an interesting career. I've been a Labour councillor. Right. Um, obviously, I've got my sporting interests, mm. my trade union stuff. Um, when I left the trade union executive group and went back into the fire service, um, you know, I then worked in, in our operations centre and, mm. of course, across our desks came things like Grenfeld and, and all sorts of stuff. So I, I got to a certain age, 55, and I, I was just tired. Yeah. I was just tired. I was just, you know, and I truly do believe that when your time's up, your time's up. Let someone else have the job. <laughs> and so when you worked for the TUC, did you come out of the fire service to do that? No, that was just part was of my trade union role. So when, right. when I sat for many years on the TUC Race Relations Committee, mm. finally on the General Council, that was just part of what I did as, mm. as, a, as, a, as a trade union official. Um, and, and those were interesting. Um, very a very political, mm. what I call a risk-averse organisation. Right. Uh, the TUC, we had some some real challenges there. 
um, in terms of what we felt as, as race activists that needed to yeah. be done and what we wanted the trade union movement, which is what the mm. trade CUC represents, needs to do and what what a very, with a small C, not politically, but with a small C, a very conservative organisation wants to do. That's a really interesting insight because I think from the outside, people always think about unions as being you know, very contentious and out there and pushing the boundaries and all that sort of stuff. So the internal experience was obviously very different. It was obviously... In, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I mean, unions are, are, are just are just organisations, you know, and, and in some parts of, of, of the trade union movement, they're, they're just organisation, depending on the industry, organisational cultures. And, it, and it's no different for, for a union in terms of its management or its structure you know and I, I remember some of our biggest battles over the years have been internal union battles absolutely mm. you know i remember the, the tuc at our behest um especially after stephen lawrence died and mm. we had the mcpherson and we we sat on we were part of something called the stephen lawrence Task force which was about the trade unions really and then we started to look at trade union representation mm -hmm. especially around you know people who were seen in workplaces as minorities and the trade union representation wasn't very good and we you know we started talking about women and i use black in a much wider sense yeah. um and, and 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 our people from our lgbtq plus communities the trade unions didn't look any greater depending on the industry mm -hmm. you know when, when i think of some of you know, to try, you know, don't forget it from a trade union perspective, there's only ever been one. Sorry, there's now two, but certainly when I was around, there was only ever one general secretary from the trade union who was black. You know, it was Lord Bill Morris. Yeah. You know, and a good friend of mine, Pat Roach, is now the NASWAT general secretary. But before that, there were never many senior mm. um, black trade union leaders or, or, or women, you know. Um, so even the trade unions, you know, had their struggles. The trade unions, don't forget, came out of a certain, as I said, depending on the industry, a certain culture. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the you know the, the struggle was was everywhere. Um, absolutely. And do you think that that lack of representation, and this is a more general, not just in in mm. sort of the TUC or the five you know, people, the I, I would say call it an excuse, but the reason why quite often people say, um, well. Um, it's a meritocracy here. Is a meritocracy a myth? In a lot of places, absolutely mm. it is. Um, and I often talk to people around when people use the word equality or e equity mm. and meritocracy. I often say it's before we get to meritocracy, what happens below that? Because ultimately what happens there is, is what gives you your end result up there. You know, and so some of the things we did in the fire service and in, our, in, other, in other industries was, was to really look at that. How do we get to that meritocracy? Mm. What happens below the surface? And, and then all the evidence tells us when we talk about education, you know, when we talk about health, you know, when we talk about employment, all of a sudden, you know, yeah. all the trends tell us that actually a meritocracy is very hard to achieve because there's, no, stuff, level playing field. there's no level playing field. Mm. And, and, and that was really difficult. It's really difficult to... Not so much to get the message across, but to, 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 to get people to understand that, that that's, that's what we mean by meritocracy. But it has to start at the bottom. Yeah. It doesn't start when you're halfway through your career because by then it's too late. Yeah. Um, and it was really difficult um, in the fire service, very challenging to talk about equity as opposed to equality um, and, and, and you know, those type of conversations, absolutely. How, how did you get from London fire service 
trade union activist, racial activist, to working for Northumbria Water in the North of England? Yeah, I just said I retired in 2018. Um, my wife's a borough lass, so she, she's from Teesside and she'd lived in London for many years um, after, you know, going to university mm. up here. Um, so we've been together quite a few years and I just like coming up here. And, and the stars aligned really. We had some, some family difficulties up here. In, in my father-in-law was quite ill. My daughter was going from primary to secondary school. We weren't overly impressed um, with the schools in our catchment area. Um, and I'd always kind of said to myself um, that I didn't want to retire and be in London. Mm. I mean, the plan always was years ago to, to not be in England, you know, with, with parents in, in, in the Caribbean. Um, so, yeah, all those things came together and we just, as I said, I've always liked coming up here for years, Northumberland and places like that when I've visited and I just thought, let's go for it. You know, I often talk to people, even now, people haven't seen me for a while, say, how's retirement me? Hey, you know, <laughs> I don't even realise I'm, I'm busier I'm than ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had a couple of years, I did nothing and it was wonderful. I mean, I was doing nothing in a really wonderful place and I could never have imagined myself doing nothing in London in, mm. in, in much the same way. And I have to tell the story, then COVID turned up, the pandemic turned up, and I went from this wonderful existence of not doing a lot, just making sure that Anna was supported and the kids were yeah, yeah. watered and fed. And, and all of a sudden I was doing it around the clock. And, <laughs> and, and on top of that, of course, we were, we were homeschooling, weren't we? And uh, which gave us the greatest appreciation we could have ever had about in terms of the teaching profession. You know, all of a sudden, I'm, you know, I've got two re reluctant students, like yeah, millions yeah. of other reluctant students. And I'll never forget one evening, <laughs> like a month into lockdown, and my wife just said to me, are you all right? And I said, no, nah, I'm not all right at all. She said, do you want to go and get a bit, try and get a job? Said, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, lo and behold, she helped me to register with a couple of agencies. And within about, I don't know, three weeks of being out there again, mm. um, yeah, someone contacted me and said, Northumbrian Water of got a few roles that you might be interested in based on your CV. And I'm going to be honest, I found the, the easy, what I thought was the easiest role. I thought, I could do that. <laughs> um, and they contacted me. And when I sort of clarified what I was looking at, they sort of, oh, no, no, no. You know, based on your CV and what they'd found out about me, this is, this is, the, and I was like, no way. No way am I doing that. I'm not going back into that. <laughs> Um, but I had a conversation with, with our HR director and subsequently um, our head of people and experience and uh, yeah, and, and there I was. Um, and one of the things that attracted me to it was it was not anywhere less intensive, but, but the same sort of challenge that I'd done and I felt that I'd had plenty of tread in it, in the skin in the game, as you call it, um, in terms of the demographic of... Mm -hmm. The water industry, not only Northumbrian water and what the fire service used to look like. Yeah. So I thought it was something I could possibly help with. Um, and I genuinely meant that, help. I'll never forget when I came off the phone and my wife sort of mentioned, you know, the salary and it sort of dawned on me, I never even asked. <laughs> <laughs> I never even thought about the salary. And of course, you could only, you only had that privilege, didn't you, when you've got a pension yeah, already. Yeah, yeah. And it just didn't dawn on me. I just saw the challenge you know, like often doing things, I just say, oh, it's a bit of a challenge, or oh, maybe mm. I can. Um, so that's how I ended up at Northumbrian Water. So working in the northeast, um, I would imagine it's quite different to working in London. Just a little bit. <laughs> um, 
how have you found sort of attitudes towards diversity? Are, are they, uh, is it different? Is it the same? Is it the same challenges? Is it different challenges? What, what's it like working in that sector, in that environment in the Northeast? It, it's different in that, especially when you look at certain human characteristics, there's less of it here. Mm. So, you know, we take, for no real reason, take gender out of the equation. And, and when you start to talk about, you know, other, other types of, you know, under-recognised or under-represented peoples, then, you know, it's lower here. Um, I mean, there's certain things that, that you just take for granted coming out of London or any other big city because of its demographic, and, and you don't do that here. Um, but, but one of the things I've always loved about, about the North, especially the northeast is 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 the human traits you know warm funny um literally you know just just a belief in in humankind and, and people are just nice mm. so so when you've had conversations and, and, and sometimes you, you know you, a bit of storytelling people really listen and, and try and understand it because it's not in their day-to-day -day life you know so, so the difference I've found is, is, is certainly it's more challenging in certain respects because of the demographic. Yeah. But, 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 but the flip side of that is that genuinely the people really want to understand it, you know, and then want to understand it in a way so they can then go away and, and, and mm. do the right things and, and make sure that um, everyone gets an opportunity and everyone understands that the opportunity is there for them, whereas... Um, you know, sometimes funny enough, you know, in, in in the most diverse demographic place, sometimes you don't get that. You know, people are just hardwired to say, no, I'm not going to do that, mm. you know. Um, so that's the difference I've found, that, that the North East, the people are, are a little bit more open um, to understanding what we mean by change and what we mean by diversity. And then, of course, you know, when you sell it to them, that it's very much something that, that they are involved in yeah. and that they can influence because when we start to talk about inclusion, you're talking about everyone. I think people are, are, are fairly open to it, um, you know, as, as, as in my experience so far. Um, I still think some of our leaders, some of our business leaders um, have got a long way to go because, you know, if we're going to really start to talk about shifting things, then it's about leadership, as we said mm. earlier. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced in terms of what I've seen. I've done some work with the Chamber and, and other organisations. I'm not convinced that, you know, that, that leaders truly believe in it. Um, I guess it was when we started to get the right type of leaders in other parts of the country, it was a little bit easier for them because they had the demographic. Mm. It's interesting, though, talking to somebody recently who was saying, um, if you haven't got the demographic, well, there's two things, you know, have you, is that an excuse or have you really not got the demographic? Um, you know, and if, if you have, just try harder to, to engage. What are yeah. you doing to engage with those different communities? But there's there's also a thing around, well, if you can't get your workforce to reflect diversity in the way that you want it to, what about the other parts of your business, like your suppliers? So look at your supply chain. How diverse is that? Because that usually isn't geographically restricted. Absolutely. If you're buying paper, you don't need to buy it from the man yeah, around yeah. the corner. If you're buying, you know... IT services, they're all delivered remotely. So mm. look at it. How creative do, do you think organisations need to get in order to deliver around diversity and inclusion? 
Well, well, part of that is about culture. You know, how creative are they? Yeah. Full stop. So if you sit in an organisation, um, you know, it's when I think up here, I think of Mufumbi Water, I think of Greg's and all those mm. places, you know, big employers, big reputations and profiles. If your culture is one of creativity and innovation, then all you've got to do is lend yourself with what you already do to that space. Mm. It's interesting, when I first came to Northumbrian Water, very early on, I started to talk about the supply chain because in the public sector now, you can't even get into the supply chain unless you tick certain diversity boxes. It's just impossible. You know, we fought for years from a London Fire Brigade perspective and, and we had political support as well, thankfully, where we just literally said, unless these are the things you do, you can evidence that you can't even tender for our hundreds of millions of pounds of contracts. Mm. And so one of the first conversations I had at Northumbria Mortal with our procurement people was, was exactly that. What do we do about supply chains? And one of the good things that we do, but one of the obstacles to that was we committed to spending 60 odd pence in every pound locally. Mm. You know, and of course, we not only obviously provide water and wastewater service up here, we also are in Essex and Suffolk water from a water perspective, we provide water there. So all of a sudden, you, you know, you, 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 you're really stretching yourself a little bit um, because in one breath, it's a really good local community commitment to make, but it then sort of ties your hands a little bit, you know, so of course my argument would be right with the other 40 pence in the pound, we better go here, there and everywhere. Right? Yeah. Um, but again, it, it's about, first of all, knowing, knowing what your internal landscape is. And we had to do a, a lot of work. Um, what, what, who are our suppliers? How long have they been our suppliers? What are they doing around d mm. You know, what are their beliefs? What do they understand about the journey we're on? You know, how are they now going to align with that? And, and we haven't got to the point of saying, like we did in the public sector, unless you do, you can't do this. Um, but we're on the road to it. We're on the road to it because... You know, you, you can't say as an organisation, this is what we want to be and then not demand it of people who are getting your money. Yeah. Um, it, that doesn't work. So we've talked a lot about sort of your, your, your roles in, in your career and your, your, your jobs. What about, what about Mickey at home? What, uh, what, sort of, what sort of things do you do to chill out, relax and detach from some of the quite emotive stuff that you're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Oh, I do some weird and wonderful things. <laughs> and my mates, literally, especially my London mates, look at me as if I've lost my mind compared to, <laughs> compared to the Mickey that they knew. So, you know, I left London. I had a certain physique. Um, we had the privilege when we moved up here and then bought our first home here. In fact, before we bought our first home, um, our neighbour, um, when we first moved up here, had a double garage. And he, in the corner, he had an unused multi-gym. I sort of said, Tim, what are you doing with that? And he said, oh, my son bought it in London, then realised it was too big for his flat. <laughs> so he shipped it up here. So then we, we you know, and I'd started to look after myself physically a little bit better. So then we turned that into a gym. Um, so I trained and then we bought our first property here. I turned the double garage there. I decided that wasn't going to be storage. So I exercise. Um, I'm a football coach. So, so that's a release, shouting at kids. Or more, <laughs> or more to the point, kids shouting at me. Sometimes it's like a crash. Um, so I took my FA um, badges, as they call oh, them. So yeah. I became a, a qualified football coach. Um, and that, that's a release. My daughter, both my kids, my younger kids play football. My daughter's a really, really good footballer. My son's not bad. 
although he now likes rugby. So I coached my daughter's girls' team, um, a really good side. Um, and then, you're going to love this, Jill. My son started a paper round last year. I'm trying to impress upon my young kids the need to understand money and the value yeah. of money and earning and money. independence. Mm. You know, and stop nicking off a mum and dad just having <laughs> money. So, so I went to my local paper shop and in the window it was paper round. I said, oh, I can do it. Tell the boy. <laughs> Luke, I've got a paper round for you. And at first he was really keen, but he's getting up at half six and, and a couple of days a week he was going to morning club, football and sport mm. before eight o'clock, eight o'clock. So he was, and we just got to a point about two months ago, he said, Dad, I just can't do this anymore. I'm knackered, I'm just burnt out. And I thought, oh no, because I was really enjoying it because I went with him every oh, morning. Right. So I walked around with him and it was great. Dad and, dad and son time yeah. and, and it was lovely. And, and, and I thought, oh no. I've really enjoyed getting up. So I happened to mention to my daughter, nothing like my son, about giving up the paper. And she said, I'll do it with you, Dad. And I laughed at this point. And so did my wife. We both went, yeah, right. She's not, <laughs> she's not coming up for that. She does not do hard work. <laughs> but she was absolutely on it that she was going to come out and do the paper. And needless to say, she did one. <laughs> um, so I've carried on doing it. Oh, have you? So now I do a paper round on my bike. Sometimes <laughs> I jog it. Um, and my mates in London, when I say, oh, you know, we're chatting on the phone, I go, right, I'm having an early night tonight. I've got the paper around in the morning. They go, what? <laughs> but, but that's a wonderful release as well, because I'm just yeah. cycling around or running around, talking to myself. Um, mindful so, moments. So, so mm. all those things are mindful moments, absolutely. Mm. And then I've got my kids, and, and sometimes, not often, but the kids are a wonderful release as yeah. well. You know, because <laughs> especially today's kids, they've got a completely different perspective on work and life. And sometimes you come away from a laptop, mm. you know, and you're a bit tense or something's happened and you're a bit, and then you, you know, the kids just come out with something and you just think, you know, well, that's, that's what life's about, really. So, yeah, exercise, my family, and uh, yeah, and that wonderful thing known as a paper round. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I first mentioned it to Peter and London, they went, what? People still do paper rounds. <laughs> I said they do where I live. All the elderly do. Yes, yeah, they they yeah. love a bit of paper. None of that iPhone and mm. iPad stuff. No, they'll still have their daily print. Yeah, my parents in their eighties, they have paper. paper every day. Yeah. I mean, I was I was shocked when I first started doing it. How many people on on our mm. patch still have milk delivered? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. That's but the milkman does loads more now, doesn't he? So you can deliver eggs and. Orange juice and all sorts of things at the same so time. That, so that, yeah. that really takes me back, you know. Yeah. Of course, I'm walking around with Luke and I'm seeing that and I'm explaining it to him and he's looking at me and saying, shut up. <laughs> they actually call it the olden days. The you know, olden. Dad, you know in the olden days? Yeah. You know, I said, well, pre-war or after the war? <laughs> no, you know, when you, was, when you was my age, they say. They call it the olden days. Um, so, so, so they're a wonderful, wonderful release at times, not often, but at mm. times the kids Apart are. Apart from during COVID. <laughs> kids are good. And I've got three other children. I've got the oldest, I said he's 35. He works for Red Bull. Okay. He's Max Verstappen's mechanic. Um, so he's been in that game for a while. He travels all over the world, sees none of it, as he said. <laughs> and I've got two middle daughters. One worked for Tesla. One's just starting as a midwife. She's just finished her midwifery degree. So she starts in a hospital in three weeks. That would be really interesting. <laughs> none of us, yeah. none of us realised she had any, any kind of inclination in terms of kids, ever. And all of a sudden, she came home after she finished her A level and said, oh, "I'm going to do a midwifery degree." We laughed. Me and her mum laughed. I said, really? 
But yeah, so she struggled through that. So the kids are doing good, and, and that gives you a certain amount of relief and yeah, pressure and absolutely. laughter. You talk about you know this podcast about fearing less, and you've done a lot of that during your during your your, your time. What do you want to do more of in the future? Well, Northumbrian Water launched our first ever DNI strategy last October, so I definitely want to deliver on that, and that is mm. challenging. We've got recruitment targets. Um, certainly from a disability and an ethnicity perspective, are going to be challenging. Um, so I definitely want us to, to, to really make some inroads in some mm. of the things we've got there. We've got a gender pay gap target and all sorts of stuff. So that, on a professional level, I really want to mm. um, deliver as best as we can. And I've got till the end of 2025 to, you know, to start to really show some evidence of, of progress and improvement there. Um, and other than that, just I just want to be healthy. You know, I'm, I'm 60 in two weeks, almost two weeks today. Um, and I just I just want to remain as healthy as I can because um, I think that's really, that's the root of everything. If, mm. No matter what your ambitions or your dreams are, if you haven't got the decent health to go with it, then it, it's nothing, isn't it? It doesn't, it doesn't pan out. Well, that's a lovely way to end. I think that's you know, it's really important, isn't it? That uh, we yeah. look after ourselves for now and for the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so thanks ever so much for talking to me today. No, it's been a, a pleasure. Fasc- Thank you. Fascinating insight into a world that I, I know very little about. Yeah. So uh, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to that episode. We're at a point in the season where it's time to take a short break, but we'll be back after Christmas on the 12th of January with six more inspiring guests. Thank you for listening to Fear Less, Do More. All of our guests come from a diverse range of backgrounds, but they all share a common drive to face their fears, take action and create meaningful impact. If you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast, please follow us at Square One Law on Instagram and LinkedIn and share the content with your friends, family and networks. Thank you and see you again on our next episode.